I've got a question. I'm going to try to start every morning with a trivia question. Some of them will be theological. They'll be nice little stumpers. And others will be just fun, I hope. Let me ask you this question. When, what, and why did Sunday school start? Brian. Yeah, that's interesting. Yes, ma'am. Ooh, okay. We're getting time period. We're getting closer. Any other uh, well-educated guesses? Robert Wright. Oh my gosh, we're getting. There is a Robert, correct? Involved. All right. Let Let me give you the. See, this is where I've always thought. You know, you ask questions. Sunday school. What does that mean? What are we doing? Where did it come from? What did? That's just me. Okay. If you've been around me long enough, you go. Why does he ask these weird questions? I don't know. I want to know. It's important to realize that Sunday schools were originally literary schools. They were places where poor children could learn to read. Y'all able to read? If not, we can go back and go remedial, okay? No problem. The Sunday school movement began in Britain in the 1780s. Yeah, we're really talking going back. The Industrial Revolution had resulted in many children spending all week long working in factories. Christian philanthropists wanted to free these children from a life of illiteracy. Well into the 19th century, working hours were long. The first modest legislative restrictions came in 1802. Move a little bit further. The English Anglican Evangelical Robert Rikus 1725 to 1811 was the key promoter of the movement. It soon spread to America as well. Denominations and non-denominational organizations caught the vision and energetically began to create Sunday schools. So with that say, that's kind of what I'm going to do here. I'm going to take Sunday school literally as a school option. You're going, oh, come on. I want us to go through and study together. We're going to be going through the, well, part of John chapter 6. Obviously, there's no way we're going to be able to go through the book of John in five weeks. So let me open in prayer, and we'll kind of dig into this, and we'll all have fun. Father God, help us this morning to remember we are first students of the Word, first for ourselves, and then as we share to those around us. God, help us to have open minds to understand all the things going on, In the writings that John gave us, that you have penned for us, help us to fully understand and apply the truths of the scriptures to our lives. God, give us wisdom and understanding in these things. We love you and appreciate everything you continually do. In Jesus Christ our Lord, amen. All right, over the next five weeks, we're going to be going through a portion of John 6. I'm in a deep study of the book of John and have been saturated with so much of this stuff. This text of Scripture came at a time when I needed its truths to get through a hard time. And because I'm in the study of John, I thought, why not? Best time for all of us to go through it. Where you're teaching. I remember years ago when I was associate pastor in Mississippi, the pastor I worked under, he suddenly had to leave. And I was in the middle of studying the book of Hebrews And, of course, I went, uh, uh, okay, and so we just started studying the book of Hebrews. Of course, I found out the denomination I was with didn't believe in eternal security, but believed in eternal insecurity. That created some issues, so had to move on. 
So many today want a quick read and a quick resolve without the background information necessary to fully understand the text of Scripture. Do you see that? Do you see that in yourself, those around you? Let me give you an idea how that looks. I've always been a fan of the book and now the movies of J.R.R. Tolkien's The Hobbit. I have heard many state that they did not like the slowness of the first movie. Serious? As I probe deeper, it comes down to the time that it took to present and develop all the characters. The whole of the book is not presented in any time period that we know of. Do you realize that when you go through books like that, that's a time period that you don't remember and you didn't study it in history classes in school? So there's a lot you have to pick up. It's a fantasy with nothing that we can really hang our hats on to at least be able to gain the understanding. Everything has to be presented in detail to give us the full knowledge of the geography, the culture, the people, the creatures, and also the history. You realize, too, that Tolkien, when he wrote this, he wrote not only the history, the cultural background, and built the geography. Who in the world does that kind of stuff? From, From absolutely nothing. And at the beginning of the book, you are presented with 13 dwarfs. You ready for this one? None of which we have ever met or know anything about. Let me ask you this question. Can you name all 13? Some of you are going, I don't even know the book. Okay, fine. Well, let's see. you got Bofer, Biffer, Balan, Dwalin, Philly, Killy, Glowen, Owen, Nori, Ori, Dory, Bumber, and Thorin. Thorin's the leader. Of course you knew that, right? Okay. As it takes time to understand the elements necessary to understand the story of the Hobbit, it also takes the same amount of time to understand the books of the Bible and to understand Scripture. Why do we study the Scripture? Why do we have to get into the details? So it fits and makes sense. And I get in a lot of trouble because a lot of... I'm going to get in trouble right now. So a lot of people just love to send out verses of Scripture, right? And they text them out. What are you missing when you just get a verse of the day? Context. I love the context. I remember when I, was, when I grew up, I had that wonderful verse that says, wherever two or more are gathered in my name, so I'd be in the midst. And all of a sudden they turn out and they tell you what? That means that's talking about prayer. <laughs> mm. What happens when you look at the context? What are we talking about? What's the context of that chapter? Church discipline has nothing to do with prayer. Plus, if you do logic, what's it mean? Wherever two or more are gathered in my name, so I'd be in the midst. So if it's just you in your prayer closet having a nice, quiet time with the Lord, what does it mean? Well, if you reverse the logic, it means God's not there. Does that make sense? Would that fit with Scripture? No. So immediately something's wrong with that text in that context. So the context has to be studied. So in other words, context means you study the verse, you study the chapter, you study the surrounding chapters, you study the surrounding books, study the surrounding whole element of the Bible. It takes you some time. We're the instant pudding society, right? Three minutes in the microwave and your breakfast and lunch is done. Ew. I don't think I want to do that. If you don't take time to understand all the elements around the text of Scripture, it's as if that you're going to a gallery. A gallery with an artist who has developed these paintings of the wilderness, these intense graphic paintings. So your anticipation is high. You're excited about getting into that gallery to see these magnificent sceneries. And all of a sudden you go in and every single one of these huge paintings are covered with sheets with a four-inch square cut out in the middle. 
What? That's exactly what it would be like to study the Scriptures out of context without the full reference. Your anticipation is to go in and see the whole of this painting, not a two-inch square. Two-inch square, what are you going to get? You have no idea. You have no clue what it means. So my hope as we progress in these next five weeks is to really just walk through a study of John 6 together. How I go through, you're also going to see, why does this guy think this way? You're going to see a lot of my thinking and how we go through this stuff. All right, let's go into this. The best place to start, authorship, okay? John is not directly stated as being the author, but the testimony of the early church fathers attests to the fact that John is the writer of the gospel. Who are these church fathers? Okay, now you're going to get some church history here. Let me ask you this question, more trivia. Who did the Apostle John disciple directly, and then maybe who did that individual disciple? Do you know? Polycarp. John the Apostle discipled Polycarp. Polycarp discipled Irenaeus. These are called the church fathers. These are the original. These are the people right next to the apostles. They're the ones who are attesting that John wrote the book of John. You'd also notice, too, that none of the other gospel writers, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, none of them state that they were the writers or the authors of those books. It's all through the church fathers that we understand the authenticity and who the writers are. Now, there's a specific reason why John does not state himself. Also, John doesn't put himself up in the front in the way of understanding and studying John and what he's trying to communicate. Let's get a little idea of who John is. And again, this is where you want to always do your study. Get to know the people that are going on. Get to know the characters. You notice, as you read through The Hobbit, you're seeing this character development. It takes quite a few chapters to get through. I mean, you got quite a few. I mean, who's Bilbo? Really? Yeah, he's, he's the guy down the street. No, you have no clue. So you need this kind of information to go through. John is part of a brother pair. Who's his brother? James, Okay. We're all aware that his brother James has the same temperament, which gets their nickname, Boanerges, which means the sons of thunder. Okay, where did this come from? Mark 3:17, James, the son of Zebedee, and John, the brother of James, to whom he gave the name Boanerges, this is sons of thunder. Who gave him that name? Jesus did. What ways to be recommended and remembered, right? I mean, what a beautiful way to go through in life. If you want to, go to Luke chapter 9, verse 51, and we get an idea. This is the event that gives them this name. When the days drew near for him to be taken up, that's Jesus, he set his face to go to Jerusalem. And he sent messengers ahead of him who went and entered a village of the Samaritans to make preparation for him. But the people did not receive him because his face was set toward Jerusalem. And when his disciples, James and John, saw it, they said, oh my word, guys, Lord, do you want us to tell, tell fire to come down from heaven and consume them? But he turned and rebuked them, and they went on to another village. Really? These are your missionary head guys. These are the perfect missionaries you want, right? The sons of thunder... Some town rejects you. What do you do? Hey, can we destroy them? I don't think this is the missions group that you're looking for. 
Here's an idea. MacArthur in his book on the 12 Ordinary Men, excellent book to have, just to give yourself a little background of the 12 men that Jesus called around him. MacArthur writes about John, It is clear from the gospel accounts that John was capable of behaving in the most sectarian, narrow-minded, unbending, reckless, and impetuous fashion. Those descriptive terms. He was volatile. He was brash. He was aggressive. He was passionate, zealous, personally ambitious, just like his brother James. They were cut from the same bolt of cloth, but John aged well under the control of the Holy Spirit All his liabilities were exchanged for assets. So what is now the writer's theme, now that we understand a little bit about the writer? What is his point he's trying to get across in the book of John? makes a major impact on how you're studying and what you're getting out of it. Each of the gospel writers had a focused intent. Matthew's focus is on the Messiah. Mark's focus is on the suffering servant. Luke focused on Jesus' compassion. And John's focus was on the person and work of Christ. Keep that in mind. As we go through, he's going to keep us focused on Jesus. He's very clear about where we need to go in our thinking. He's narrow in what we're trying to get, and he's focused. There's also some issues that kind of throw you off a little bit because he's not going to give you everything that Jesus did. He's going to be very specific on the events that he brings up. They're going to be specifically focused on the personal work of Christ. John 20, 30 through 31. Now Jesus did many other things in the presence of his disciples which are not written in this book. John's very clear. I'm not covering everything. And the reason why. But these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ the Son of God, and that my believing you may have life in his name. John's writing is not like any of the other Gospels also. He's different. Trivia number three, okay? What are the synoptic Gospels? You hear that term, you're like, oh, yeah, okay, go on. What's a synoptic Gospel? What are they? Or which ones are they? Let me put it that way. Have I got a good Come on. Matthew, Mark, and Luke. What's wrong with John? Why is he different? Why is he not called a synoptic gospel? All right, simple definition of what a synopsis is or a synoptic is. It's presenting or taking the same or common view, specifically often capitalized, of or relating to the first three gospels of the New Testament. Ah, point. Presenting or taking the same common view. In other words, you read Matthew, Mark, and Luke, And you can pretty much parallel as they're walking through, and they're pretty much covering about the same things. Okay. Now, in this text of John 6, we're actually going to ultimately get to the feeding of the multitude. That is also in the other three Gospels. So why is John not classified as a synoptic Gospel? John leaves a lot out. A lot of the events that that he leaves out are, are huge pieces. Some examples that he leaves out, the temptation of Jesus, Jesus' transfiguration, and the institution of the Lord's Supper. These aren't in John. Because, again, John's specific point is to show what? The work of Christ and who he is. Those would kind of just blur the issue. Again, John's extremely focused. 
So John begins his gospel with an affirmation of Jesus' preexistence and full deity. Go to John 1, verse 1. And again, now you're getting an idea. Why did John start this way? Because he wants to set the absolute theme to say, we're going to be talking about the personal work of Christ. That's our focus. That's where we're going to be for the rest. Do you remember that in your, uh, I hate to say this, your college lit class? Or even in high school? What your paragraphs and what your initial opening paragraph is to do in your paper? Do you you remember? Do what? It's the introduction. It's going to give the theme and the flow and gives you kind of where you're going to go. And if that's off course, guess what? Your professor or your teacher is going to go, put a nice little red F on there. Why? Because you've got to state where you're going to go. And then you've got to support everything you're going to do. And that's exactly what John does. John 1, verses 1 through 5, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God. And the Word was God. And He was in the beginning with God. All things came into being through Him, and apart from Him nothing came into being that has come into being. In Him was life. And the life was the light of men, and the light shines in the darkness, and the darkness did not comprehend it. Interesting. He sets up everything that we're going to be doing. John's literary point of view, what's he trying to go? How is he going to communicate this? How is he going to carry this across? Again, we're going to go through a little bit of setup for the first day to kind of get you to understand where's John, what's he doing, how is he moving through, and when we start actually digesting and breaking down and applying John 6, we're going to have a better flow of where we're moving and what we're doing. It takes a lot of work, right? You're getting a feel for it. The synoptics are written from a third-person point of view, describing the events as if the authors had personally observed all of them and were reporting what they saw at the time. Again, synoptic, Matthew, Mark, and Luke. Thus, they are basically descriptive in their approach. John's Gospel, on the other hand, although also written from a third-person point of view, is more reflective Clearly, later than the events he describes, the author of the fourth gospel very carefully separates himself from the events he describes. Why? Why does he not state who wrote it? Do you ever not read something and go, who who wrote this? And immediately you gain whether there's authority or what's being written has any kind of base because the person has that kind of a background. John doesn't even state that. Neither do the other gospel writers. However clear it is that he was an eyewitness of the life of Jesus, it is no less clear that he looks back upon it from a temporal distance. While we see the events through his eyes, we are artfully guided to see the events Jesus' life not as John saw them when they happened, but as he now sees them. He's reflecting back. So you get kind of a different feel. As you're reading John, you're going to feel a little bit more as he's, he's reporting to us the events, but they have gone through John. You ever notice that in a sermon? Felt the difference sometimes in a sermon from one, one individual to another, one who just goes through and like in a, I hate to say this, most of the time you might find this in a college preaching class. They just do the job and just preach it. They've got all the mechanics, they've got their homiletics down, they've done the exegetical work, it looks really nice and formed, but as they give it, you're like, eh. 
But when the message and the, the verses of the Scripture go through the individual and it comes out in the sermon, there's a whole different intensity, isn't there? It's reflective. They're positioning, saying, I've learned from this. The Word of God has moved me. And that's exactly what we're saying about John. You're getting it from the reflective point. The text of Scriptures, what he's going through, what he saw is gone through him has made radical changes in this man. We move on. That we understand more of the significance of the events described from the position the writer now holds than an eyewitness could have understood at the time he event, the events took place. In this sense, John's gospel is much more reflexive. It's deeper. It's personal. It has an awful lot of application. You're going to see how he's looking at and how it's reverberating inside of him. John wrote this gospel but did so in a way that kept the eyes off of himself and only on Jesus. It is clear that he did not cover all that Jesus did and knew that would have been an impossible task. In John 21, 24, I won't get into it, but that's the one. That, I mean, You just read it and you go, wow, we couldn't have gotten everything. He literally turns and he says, the fact is now there are also many other things that Jesus did where every one of them to be written, I suppose that the world itself could not contain the books that would be written. Can you imagine? Just think of that. Sit on that one for a while and just realize what we've got recorded in Scripture here is just a fraction of all that Jesus did. So don't sit there and say, well, John, you didn't cover... Really? How could he? All right, what's the next thing? The who, what, where, when, and why. You guys have done that before as you're looking and studying Scripture. Get kind of a feel. What are all the characters? What's going on? Well, let's get the the time period of this writing. What's going on? Church Fathers indicated that John was in old age, written prior to 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John in Revelation, probably about 80 to 90 A.D., which is about 50 years after Jesus' earthly ministry. Talk about a lot of reflecting back of everything that he went through. Let's read John 6, 1, 1 through 15. Just as, this is where we're going to be trying to go. We'll just read a little bit of this. But this, if I could get you to just this week and the next five weeks to read John 6, I'd rather you read the whole book of John so we get the context, remember? Because if we're just doing John 6, what's going to be missing? The context of the whole scripture. I recommend that you would do that at least at least once, okay? It's pretty easy. Well, it's kind of an easy read unless you start thinking heavy on it. But that gives you the whole idea of where John's going. I've told it to the... I've told it a lot of my classes, and it's something that, that MacArthur taught us back at Grace that was something that's kind of hit. Before John starts to teach a book... What he does is he will read through the whole book every day for 30 days. This is before he starts studying. What do you think that gives you? It starts to give you an aerial effect of the whole book. For the people that have done this, and I've recommended to do it, all of a sudden they go, wow, and you start talking about different parts of the book, and they go, oh, I know exactly where it is. And you get to the point where you also know what page it's on, about in the middle, Right? You start reading and studying that kind of way and prep yourself for study, 
all of a sudden that text, you become an aerial event above it to see the whole panorama of what's going on. Again, you want to stay away from that gorgeous painting being blocked by a sheet with a four-inch square, two-inch square. You want to go aerial. So if you can, read through the book of John a couple of times. John 6, 1, after these things, Jesus went away to the other side of the Sea of Galilee, or Tiberias. A large crowd followed him because they saw the signs which he saw he was performing on those who were sick. Then Jesus went up to the mountain, and there he sat down with his disciples. Now the Passover, the feast of the Jews, was near. Therefore, Jesus, lifting up his eyes and seeing that a large crowd was coming to him, said to Philip, Where are we to buy bread so that these may eat? This he was saying to test him, for he himself knew what he was intending to do. We'll stop there because I'm definitely not going to get that far. What is John going to try to do? Where are we at locationally? What's going on in the history here? Again, now we have to ask that piece. What's the historical event that's occurring? What are we going through? We have a large gap of time. If you look at the text of Scripture, we have a large gap of time between the place where John 5 ends and John 6 starts. It's a massive gap. We read in John 1 that after this, there was a feast of the Jews, and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. Wait a minute. Wait a minute. Didn't we just talk about the Sea of Galilee or the Lake of Tiberias? Didn't, but in John 5, we were talking about Jerusalem... Okay, Jerusalem is... Okay, geography, ready? <laughs> Guys, open your maps every once in a while. They're hilarious. They're fun, fun to work with. Lower part, Jerusalem. Lower region is called Judea, right? Oh, why not? Trivia, question four. And, I, and actually, I saw this on one of the question, the elder questions, and I was like, ooh, I know that one, I know. Okay, one of those... Kids that drive you nuts in school, right? Teach you, teach you. Okay, never mind. Why, when they're talking about all the tribes, and they're talking about the tribe of Judah, there's one tribe, as you, they get the list, sometimes you get a list, and you get 11 tribes, you go, uh-oh, what happened to the 12th one? Okay? So you have the tribe of Judah, and that you have the tribe of Judah, and you're, where's that 12th one? They're not mentioned. Who is the twelfth that usually is not mentioned but is combined with the tribe of Judah? Benjamin, correct. Why? The tribe of Benjamin was so small, they kind of dwarfed anyway, and they were already part of the lower region when the kingdom was split in two. They stayed in that area. And instead of trying to go through the detail and they were a small tribe, they were protected at that point. There are also tribes, if you go back in history, in one of my classes we taught this, in history they almost were wiped out because of some serious sin that they went through. And to tell you the truth, that would have been a pretty big disaster because who else was from the tribe of, of Benjamin that we find as one of the writers of the New Testament? Paul. Come on, confidence for him. He is the, he is the tribe of... Benjamin, now, if Benjamin was wiped out, who wouldn't have we had? Saul Tarsus. I know, I, I trivia, driving you nuts, right? Okay. All right, let's keep going. John did not identify what the Feast of the Jews was. 
Was it the Passover? Mm-hmm. Or was it the Feast of Booths or Tabernacle? We're not really told. So this gives us a little bit of work to figure out what time period we're looking at between chapter 5 and chapter 6. Things just kind of drop off. If John is referring to the Feast of the Booths or Tabernacles, we're looking at about a six-month period. Because in 6, he's identifying that we're at the time of the Passover. So this unknown could be the Feast of the Booths or Tabernacles. That would be a six-month gap. But if he's also talking about the period of the previous year's Passover, now what are you looking at? You're looking at a 12-month period. So you're looking at a 12- or 6-month gap between Chapter 5 and Chapter 6. That's pretty significant. So we're looking at the Passover 12. Keep in mind that the event of the celebration of the Passover, as it reverberates in the mind, again, now I'm trying to get you into the thinking of the people. What's going on? What are their thoughts? What's happening? What's the emotion? Again, you and I are having a great disadvantage here. We're in what year? 2014. We're about 2,000 years separated from the events. So we've got a huge gap for ourselves history. What else do we have? We have a cultural gap. How many of us have lived in that area back in that time? None of us. How about language? How many of you are very fluent in Greek, Aramaic, and Hebrew? Anybody? Yeah, I know. What else are you missing? The cultural structure. What's going on in the culture? What's it mean? What happens? Travel. You and I just get in the car and go. If they're going from Jerusalem to Galilee, how long does that take? It takes a long time period. And if a good, good Jew that you are, where will you not go through? What area? You have Judea down here. What's this next region that's above? Samaria. Where will you not go? Samaria. Hmm, okay. How did they travel at that point then? Well, okay, geography. You have Judea. Next region, Samaria, upper region, what? Galilee, what's the body of water on this side? Am I doing this graphically right? Yeah. This on this side is the Mediterranean Sea. Okay, so that's not exactly one of those get in your boat and go. Okay, what's over on this side down at the bottom? You have Egypt down here. You've got this part of body of water, lake, large sea. What do you call that? Bottom one. Dead Sea. <laughs> Never thought you'd be doing a geography class. Little river going up. What's that? Jordan. Who baptized in the Jordan? John. <laughs> Trivia five. Okay. Top body of water. Galilee. Okay. What's the region? Just. <laughs> I'm getting backwards. Over on this side is Galilee. Okay. Interesting thing. I'll give you one piece, and, and again, we'll get more into this as we get deeper. But on that. North east side of Lake Tiberias is, and you're going to see it and you know it today, it's the Golan Heights. Okay, so now you get an idea geography-wise as where we sit today versus what the text is. So you get your geography down, all right? How would then a Jew travel from Jerusalem to Galilee or from Galilee back down to Jerusalem seeing that they don't go through Samaria and there's bodies of water on both sides? Well, they would go over 
on the area, the side that was called the area of Decapolis, the ten cities, Greek ten cities, came down and came across back over. It was a long trip. Okay? When a Jew hears of the Passover back then, what's reverberating in their mind? Again, you're thinking, this is what's in these people's thinking. It's the period of the Passover. It's an intense emotional period. You're remembering of what God did for you to get you out of slavery, out of Egypt. You remember the times that he protected you and took care of you. The fact that he actually brought you out of that land, over the sea, killed the Egyptian army, protected you, you were fed, you had water, your shoes never wore out, your clothes never wore out. He protected you all the way around the, the fence. Every single thing, God took care of you. What's in your thinking? What's in your reverberation? It's an awful lot of sentiment. What did God do? Who is he? So Passover was not only a religious ceremony, but it was extremely emotional to your own personal history. That's the time period we're talking about. That's going to feed into an awful lot of the reaction of the crowd as we get through the text. It's huge to start understanding the intensity of what's going on. What's, what's reverberating? What's, what's occurring inside the individuals in this event? Does that have an impact on how you study? It does. It also helps you to get into the depth and the emotions of what's going on. Why are they reacting this way? This is ridiculous. From us on an outside, we might look at the thing, this is silly. But as you understand from where they're coming from, their standpoint, it makes a whole lot of sense. Remember, they're going to they're gonna try to take Jesus by force, and you have to understand why. Why would they do this? This doesn't make sense. When we leave chapter 5, now this is, gives you an idea of what you have to do to study the context. When we leave chapter 5, we're with Jesus in Judea and Jerusalem, but here in chapter 6, we end up in the north part of Galilee. So, what's happened in the gap? You ready for this? Oh boy. Okay, put on your straps. Let's go. Disciples pick grain on the Sabbath. Shame. Man's hand is healed in the Sabbath. Many follow Jesus to be healed. Jesus prays on the mountain. Jesus selects 12 disciples. Jesus heals the multitude. Sermon on the Mount. Jesus heals the centurion servant. Widow of uh, Nain's son is raised. The Baptist sends two disciples to question Jesus for validation. Jesus dines with, with Simon the Pharisee. Jesus heals a demon-possessed man. The sign of Jonah is given. Parables by the sea. Jesus calms a, a stormy sea on the Sea of Galilee. First storm. Keep that in mind. Legion cast out of a violent man. Jairus asked Jesus to heal his daughter. Ill woman is healed by touching Jesus' hem of his garment. Jesus raises Jairus' daughter to life. Jesus heals two blind men. Jesus heals them, a mute demonic. Twelve sent out to preach. Death of John the Baptist. Herod fears John the Baptist has risen. A lot has happened between two chapters. See, when you start digging in, you're like, oh, my word. Now, what does that also feed us up to? The last three statements. Twelve are sent out to preach. This is now we're at the edge of what we're going to go into in six. The death of John the Baptist, Jesus' cousin, 
and Herod fears that John the Baptist has risen. Now our history picks up. The twelve have returned from their ministry. Jesus sent them out to do ministry, gospel presentations, and he now has them all back. They're exhausted. They're tired. They're kind of beat down. It's just been huge. Jesus is not only wanting to minister to them and take care of them and his compassion about their issues, but at the same time, too, he's mourning his cousin's death. It was an impact. So what's going on? What does he want to do? Where are they? Well, verse 1, chapter 6. Now we get into our text. After this, Jesus went away to the other side of the Sea of Galilee, which is the Sea of Tiberias. The desire of Jesus for himself and his men was to get them to a desolate place for renewal, refreshment, and for time for him to deal with the grieving process of John. That's his focus. You see, the compassion of Jesus wanted to take care of his men. Not only he himself to go away and spend time with the Father and he himself be restored, but his 12 need renewal. They need, and the focal point is, let's go away. Let's get into this remote area where no one's going to bother us. That's not a negative thing. We just need a time. We need a break. We need a time of focus and refreshment. We need time for ourselves the same way. We need time in the Word, alone with God. Do they get it? Interesting thing, Mark, as you go through some of the other Gospels, they start filling in a lot more because, again, John's not going to give us the linear details of every little thing. He's giving us short pieces of things to kind of keep us cued where he's going. But, again, he's going to be focused on Jesus and what Jesus is doing. So the ancillary events that happen and occur around all of that, you're going to go to the other Gospels, so they'll fill in some of the blanks. Mark 6, 30 through 32 Here gives you an idea of what's occurring. The apostles returned to Jesus and told him all that they had done and taught. And he said to them, come away by yourselves to a desolate place and rest a while. For many were coming and going, and they had no leisure even to eat. And they went away in the boat to a desolate place by themselves. What do they do? Now they've departed from Capernaum to Bethsaida. Okay? That's setting up another point, too. Keep watching and thinking what's going on. Because the locations, Capernaum ends up being their Galilean headquarters. You'll notice they return to Capernaum quite often. And that's their point, basically their base camp, you might say. Then we talk about Bethsaida. That's going to key in quite a bit because we've got Philip coming up in the future here. And we've got to ask our question, why in the world is Jesus talking to Philip and asking Philip these questions? It's, con- it's connected to the fact that Philip is from Bethsaida. It's very interesting, too. You talk about some of the other apostles. The other apostles were all from that same area, and they pretty much knew each other. So again, they depart. In Luke 9.10, again, a little bit more of this picture gets filled in. On the return, the apostles told him all that they had done. Sounds a little bit familiar about what Mark said, right? So again, synoptic. They're kind of covering the same points. And he took them and withdrew withdrew apart to a town called Bethsaida. Again, 
Why does God get specific about places, names, the details? There's a reason why God specifically states things. You too should note these things. Take a little note. Bethsaida. What's Bethsaida? Where is it? Get a map out. Find where this thing, get a little location. Where's Capernaum? It's okay. So you start idea of where this trek is going. It's going to make a big point too because these guys later on down in our event, they're going to have to get on that sea or that lake and they're going to try to go about a five-mile run and not make much of that. Actually, it's about an eight-mile run. I'll even get into the detail of what this lake is all about. It's interesting because what hit my head is when, we were, when I was studying the uh, great storm that, that occurred, remember, and, and Jesus was tired, was in the boat. He was asleep. His fishermen guys and the 12 were in the boat. They were absolutely, because they are professionals and they knew this deal, they were con- convinced that they were going to die. And Jesus is asleep. Wouldn't that have been a clue to you? That if Jesus was asleep, no problem, we're okay here? But they panic. They kind of get indignant to Jesus. Remember that scene? And the storm was intense. Well, the biggest question I went in my head, and we'll kind of cover it as we keep going through, why does this lake like to have storms? What is with this thing? I mean, suddenly a storm. God went, what? Storm. No, because in our text, we've got another event. We've got a high wind situation. What is with this lake? Do you guys ever ask that kind of question? Well, I do, because the Scripture stated it, and I want to know what's going on. Why? There is a, there is a real geological reason why this uh, lake has its issues. <laughs> Makes me want to stay off of it myself. But what are we going to do? We'll actually get into that a little bit later. Bethsaida. There's the name that we've got to look at. What's the significance of the city? Bethsaida is on the north shore to the east of Galilee where the Jordan River enters the lake or the Sea of Galilee. Interesting. Geography, again, get your map out. Take a look at it. Where are they? What's going on? What's, you can even get, now today you can get on the, the Internet. It's going to help you a lot. You can actually get topological maps and find out what the elevations are. Well, that might be a big word, sorry. Uh, you can see elevations of a map. It gives you heights and things. Sea of Galilee in the Old Testament is called the Sea of Chinnereth. Luke once called it the Lake of Gennesareth. And here John calls it the Sea of Tiberias. What? Okay, you done any research on that? Again, why is Rig thinking this way? He wants to know everything that's up under this. Why is God making these statements? Why is it in the text of Scripture? There's a significance of why God states these things, so I should know. The lake was later named after the city of Tiberias, which was named after the emperor Tiberius. You guys remember this, right? Uh-uh. Neither did I. Tiberius was a Roman emperor from 14 to 37 A.D. Okay. Born Tiberius Claudius Nero, a Claudian. Tiberius was the son of Tiberius Claudius Nero and Livia Drusilla. This, that helps, doesn't it? Doesn't help me at all. His mother divorced Nero and married Augustus in 39 B.C., making him a stepson of Octavian. Now it starts to give you some history, doesn't it? It was named after that city. And it's a lake. I know we call it a sea. Believe it or not, I'll give you the reason later on as to why we call this thing a lake. 
and it gives you insight as to why this thing perks up some storms and why they can be so instantaneous and sudden. Verse 2, move a little bit further. And a large crowd was following him because they saw the signs that he was doing on the sick. We have already noted that in the 6-12 to month period, Jesus performed many miracles and signs. It's evident that there's something special about him. When they get to the other side, the crowds were there already. Again, what was their intent? To get a break, a time away, a time of renewal. Matthew 14, 14, when he went ashore, he saw a great crowd and he had, look at this, underscore, Jesus again, has compassion on them and healed their sick. He's been healing. The apostles have been out, that been out ministering. They're tired. And he continues to minister. When someone comes to you at the most inconvenient hour and needs your help, do you turn them away? I'm tired. Can you picture Jesus doing that? Can you picture any of us who are redeemed by him with his spirit living in us do the same thing? Would you ever want to sit there and realize that you'd say, no, I'm, I'm too tired. I can't really help you. Call me another day. Is that really what we're supposed to do? The examples and everything that we see Jesus doing is exactly what he calls us to do. The Christian life is not a life of convenience. It's not on your clock. It's how God asks you. Believing, believing in it or not, I have been at times where I've ministered all day, dead tired, can't even get the foot in front of the other foot. I can't move anymore. And someone comes and says, I need help. And all of a sudden, you have all the energy you need. And you burn again. And you keep going. Why? Because God empowers us to do the work of the ministry he's called us to do. It's not on convenience. It's we're active to do exactly his bidding, not ours. And Jesus is the greatest example of that. He shows us right here. What? They're tired. They're trying to get away. The crowd's there. What's he do? He has compassion on them, and he heals their sick. He ministers them. And Jesus teaches and heals the sick of the crowd. Luke 9.11. Again, another piece of Scripture that's going to fill us in on the pieces that John's not covering. When the crowds learned it, they followed him. And he welcomed them and spoke to them of the kingdom of God and cured those who had need of healing. Wow. This is Jesus doing this as an example in front of us. Why did the crowds follow Jesus? Now, this is going to get personal. Was it because they desired to know spiritual truth, how to be saved from sin's penalty of death? They had a deep remorse over their sin and knew Jesus was the Messiah who would take away the sins of the world. Is that why they followed him? No, because they saw the signs that he was doing on the sick. I have to stop. I have to ask us the question. I have to ask me the question. Why do we follow Jesus? Why do you follow Jesus? 
Is it because of what we can get? A happy life, a new car, riches, great health? Do we follow him because there is not another who can give us eternal life? That reminds you of somebody. We see the crowd later leave Jesus because the commitment was too high. And that's just in John. The health and wealth movement did not come from Jesus or the teaching of the apostles nor the early church fathers. Jesus says, pick up your cross. It's not a health and wealth call, is it? It is Jesus' call on our lives as true believers, full well knowing the cost of following Jesus. John 6, 68, we get way down the text, we'll never get there. After this, many of his disciples turned back and no longer walked with him. So Jesus said to the twelve, do you want to go away as well? Simon Peter answered him, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life, and we have believed and have come to know that you are the Holy One of God. James Montgomery Boyce, in his commentary, wrote, Men and women find their real spiritual prosperity in God. We cannot find it on the human level. We cannot find the abundant life by indulging ourselves in all that life has to offer. We cannot find happiness by pursuing it. We cannot create satisfaction. These great blessings come from God, so we must feed on God as he is presented to us in the person of the Lord Jesus Christ. Jesus is all-sufficient. Jesus is the only place you and I can go. I know we've got much more to cover in John, but I want to make us think through some things. Are we students of the Word of God daily? Do we desire to know Him personally all the time? Is He the all in all? Is He the only thing that we can think of and the only one that we go to? Do we go to anything else? Now, as we go forward, we're going to be hit with a situation. There's a question that's thrown at Philip. We're going to see a lot of ourselves in Philip. We're going to probably first look at Philip and go, what, what, what's, your, what's your problem, dude? What, what, why would, what, what kind of a response is that? Why would you come off of this like that? The focal point is you and I, day in, day out, having Jesus as the front and center of our life. As we go through this section in John, we're going to see a contrast between the multitude. We're going to see the disciples. We're going to see a lot of things. But my question to you is always look at yourself and go, what do you do? Anything comes up in your life, where do you go? First, is it Jesus? Or is it something else? Someone else? A big thing hits, where do you go? Is it Jesus? Jesus is all sufficient, and that's going to be the huge cue that we get through this section of what John is trying to get across to us. It's hard because we'll start realizing as you look at your week, as you review your week, as you see yourself walking through your week, you might say, well, I'm trying to resolve these things on my own wisdom and effort. We're not supported that way. Isaiah 55, 1 and 2 says, Oh, 
Everyone who thirsts, come to the waters. And you who have no money, come, buy and eat. That's a kind of an oxymoron. If you have no money, come buy and eat. This is God's plan. Come buy wine and milk without, without money and without cost. Why do you spend money for what is not bread? And your wages for what does not satisfy? Listen carefully to me. And eat what is good. And delight yourself in abundance. Later on as we get towards the end of our study, we're going to learn Sunday, Bruce was talking about Jesus brought up to the woman at the well that he is what? The water of life. Waters springing up, abundant. By the time we get done through this section of John 6, Jesus is the bread of life. Where else would you go to really feed and be satisfied? So that's my hope, that you actually, one, study, look at John, and test and examine yourself and see what is happening inside. Who do you go to no matter what happens? Do you go to Jesus first? As we go through John, just keep looking at yourself. I know you and I do the same thing. Oh, boy, I tell you, Sally should have been here. Man, this has been a great message for her. I mean, she really gotten a whole lot out of this stuff. And she's right. This would have smacked her in the face. And how many times do you come back and go, that smacked me in the face? Agree? Even our sermon this morning is going to hit us. What are you going to do with it? If you find sin, go to God and repent. If you find need and an emptiness, go to God for filling and satisfaction. Go nowhere else. As we continue to grow and see Jesus, we're going to see him continually as being totally sufficient. So I hope we have a great anticipated time to go through this section of John 6. More trivia questions to come, right? Let's pray. Father, help us to be true students to understand why you have stated the things and gotten the details out in front of us. Help us to be aware of everything going on. Thank you for giving us these details, not just giving us summaries and kind of high point events. You're giving us, you're getting us right in the middle of what's going on to help us to see our own need. Jesus, thank you so much for being compassionate. No matter what is going on, you're always there for us. You're never distracted. You're never too tired. You love us. And in that love, you have compassion. You take care of us. You satisfy our needs. God, help us to grow in you. Know you more. Have a greater intimacy with you every day. We love you, and we so again thank you for your love and compassion towards us, those who are so rebellious so many times. God, thank you for your patience and kindness towards us who are still yet sinners. In Jesus Christ our Lord, amen.